Dan Mack is back, and this year she has sought out the best customer-centric thought leaders from around the world. Are you after practical, accessible, and customer-centric marketing? You're in the right place. Sit back and enjoy Dan's small business podcast. For more information, go to www.daniellemckinnis.com or visit www.mckinnismarketing.com.au. Well, I'm delighted to have Dr. Lyndon Brown on the call, and he has just written a book called The Customer Culture Imperative. Um, thanks for joining us, Lyndon. Oh, it's a pleasure to uh, to be there. Good. Good to see you, Dan. So I guess I read this, at, I was lucky, I, as soon as it came out, because I'm all over customer centricity, and I just wondered, as I was reading through it, what was the main reason that you decided to write this book? I think, Dan, you know, one of the things that came through a lot of the research that we saw in our business as consultants to, to companies around this area was that uh, the majority of companies believe that they are customer-centric, but only a very small proportion of customers actually agree with that. Mm. So it's a very big disconnect between what companies believe in terms of what they're doing for customers and how customers are actually perceiving that and receiving that. Mm. Uh, so because of that big gap, we thought, well, there must be something here that's stopping organisations um, becoming customer-centric, and we really found then that one of the things about it was that it wasn't really very tangible. So that when you talk to people, you find that different people will have a different view of what being customer-focused actually is mm. and what it means. And so it seemed to um, my, my co-author and myself that we ought to firstly try and define what it is to be customer-centric and then see if we could actually measure that and from there then determine, having measured it, you know, are these factors really important drivers of business performance? Mm. And that was the research project that we did a few years ago to establish that. So maybe we should start with, you know, what did you discover customer centricity actually is? Because you're right, there's lots of definitions floating out there. Yes. Well, I think that, you know, the first thing that you realise is that it's actually cultural. <clears throat> so that you can't think of customer focus as just being a thing that you paste on at the front end of the organisation. Because at the front end of the organisation, their ability to deliver value to customers is determined by what happens in the back end. Mm -hmm. So it's determined by the processes, it's determined by, you know, the credit uh, people and how they go about collecting money from customers. All of those uh, parties in the organisation play a part. So to be really customer focused, it, you need to have what we've called a customer culture. And, you know, to, to have a culture where everybody in the organisation actually believes and acts on the mantra that we use in the book, which is what's best for the customer is best for the business. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, out of that, uh, we discovered first it was cultural and secondly that there were seven disciplines, we think of them as, or seven Th act things that that organisations actually do mm -hmm. that make them highly uh, customer-centric or customer-focused as a culture. 
So perhaps if we sort of go through those and um, you can explain what those elements are. Um, the other thing I just wanted to I noticed with the book, and, and maybe you can cover this off in those elements, um, that what I understood it to be is it's really the how that counts now. It's the how of what you do it. And I think um, a lot of businesses are still product-centric, so they're sort of focusing on the what. But as I was reading this book, it really it struck me it's the how. It's the how you be helpful. It's the how you be empathetic. It's the how you do the teamwork. It's really almost now more transparent and, and more open because of the way that we connect. So it would be good to go through those seven elements and sort of address that. Yeah, well, I think that... Um even before perhaps doing that, and I'll come back to that, there's a, there's a, a story of a company that I'd like to yeah, great. about, which really reflects customer centricity. And, and this uh, takes your point of how you do things, mm. how we do things here in our business. Um, and, you know, this is a story of what, it, what do you do when things actually go wrong for the customer? Because in many ways, that's the test of customer centricity. When things are going right, it's not obvious that you can do better. But when things are going wrong, it's very obvious because the customers let you know. Absolutely. Uh, these days. And they can let you know in all sorts of different ways, as you know. Uh, and this company is called Zane Cycles, and it's run by a guy called Chris Zane in Connecticut in the US. Mm -hmm. And it's... You know, it's a business that probably employs in in one shop there in this township in Connecticut uh, about ten or fifteen people. Uh, he has a couple of shops, uh, but he's he has he has enormous sales for a business you know that sells bicycles, uh, and it's really been put down. He's become a legend, really, in terms of customer centricity. And this is an example of, uh, of, you know, what's happened with a particular customer. He had a situation where the, he had a customer come into the shop. And this was a lady who wanted to surprise her husband with a purchase of a new bike. And she asked, she selected the bike, she paid the 50% deposit, $400 I think it was. And she said, look, I want you to do one thing. I want you to put it in the window of the shop tonight because I'm going out with my husband and friends and we're going to a birthday party. It's his birthday today. And so I want to, we're going to that restaurant across the road. When we come out of there, we're going to go across the road to your uh, window and mm -hmm. I want to see the bike in there uh, with balloons and things on it. When she'd already set the bike up, you know, to look really nice. Yeah. Well, they had their dinner and they came across and the thing was not in the window. Oh, no. Yeah, so it was really kind of very embarrassing for her. Mm. You know, the next day she really let them know what had happened. And uh, Chris Zane said to his uh, store manager, he said, you know, what are we going to do about this? Well, you know, we can, uh, we can give her credit for the rest of the bike. She doesn't need to pay for that. Um, but, you know, what can we do to really let her know that we care about this, that this was an important mistake that we've made and we recognise that? He said, why don't we you know, offer her some, um, an another dinner date at, at that particular place. Uh, and maybe her friends, you know, give them some vouchers for the movies or something like that. 
but let's do something. So the guy went out to see her mm-hmm. at her oh, So yeah. make a call. He went to see her and, and told her that, and he rang back to Chris Zane, and he said, Chris, she actually kissed me. <laughs> so, you know, this was an example of really turning something around uh, when you've made a very bad mistake, but it's also an example of a company that values their customers. But the thing that was really important about this was that the person who was supposed to put that bike in the window, who was working at the back of the business, you know, fixing bikes and, Mm. you know, doing that sort of work, realised the mistake he'd made and he actually sent a cheque of $400 to Chris Zane to make up for the loss that was actually made on that bike. Oh, wow. So that really reflects the cultural aspect of this. In In his case... You know, here's an example of an organisation where all of them have that belief and act on it. Yeah. And when something goes wrong, you know, they really fix it. Mm. And, you know, we use in business sometimes the lifetime value of a customer, which sort of shows the economics of the value of customers. Uh, And Chris Zane uses that. So he knows that a customer is going to spend, you know, $15,000 over their lifetime uh, you know, for the uh, purchase of bikes mm-hmm. over time. And, you know, once you – and that's not only a measure, but it's also a mindset, mm. uh, how you think about customers and having, having it as a, as a culture that customers are valuable, not only as people, certainly as people, but also economically to the business. So how much of that is just, you know – the person that that they just have that empathy and they just recognise that and how much of it can actually be created as a culture? Oh, look, I think it can be created as a culture, but there are going to be some people in a business that just can't adapt to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it will be from sometimes from their, their training, their disciplines, mm-hmm. you know, it can be... Uh, very uh, non-people focused mm-hmm. and you know you're going to have a situation for example you take a company like Virgin the Virgin Group all those companies that Virgin operate or all those businesses that Virgin operate in well you know they very clearly recruit people for fit mm-hmm. to the Virgin philosophy mm-hmm. which is customer service mm-hmm. for customers and fun and other elements that are there ingrained values in that brand that's reflected in all of the businesses. And even though the businesses are very different types of businesses from trains to airlines, you know, to records and so on, um, to music, uh, you know, they infuse that thinking by their recruitment mm-hmm. approach. Mm-hmm. And I think another example would be IKEA. You know, IKEA is one of the, the largest international retailers in the world, but really it's made up of lots of small businesses mm. and those small businesses are all individual shops, but again, they recruit on the basis of um, collaboration. So you've got to be able to work as a team to give value to customers is their philosophy. Mm. And if you can't, well then you won't last at IKEA. And you know, they've said that even individuals that are very, very high performers don't last at IKEA because they don't conform to the collaborative philosophy. 
Mm. So I think that you find in organisations that have been able to um, become highly customer-centric, they do two things. They, they, they firstly do a lot of things to train people to help them to become more customer-focused and empathetic with customers and learn skills about that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is that they recruit for that as well and make sure that the organisation over time is made up of people who are able to and who want to be empathetic with customers and, you know, value customers and deliver value to them. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you're starting to cover off some of those seven elements. Can you just articulate each of those for us? Yeah. Uh, look, the first and probably most important one is what we call customer insight, mm -hmm. and that's really understanding the immediate needs of your existing customers. <clears throat> you know, as a business, any business needs to have that deep understanding of customer needs and what sort of value needs to be delivered to really satisfy customers and go beyond that, make them advocates. Or, as, you know, in the sporting world, we call them fans. Mm -hmm. And some writers have written about, you know, fans, not customers. I mean, if you can create fans, well, then, you know, you, you, you've got an unpaid sales force out there that's really generating a lot of business for you. So that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Um, so customer insight is really a key thing. And I'll give you an example of a guy who has this. Mm -hmm. As a fellow who lives in Melbourne, his name's Lex Dwyer, and he, he's a fitness uh, guru. He's been doing it for a long period of time. And, you know, when he started off, uh, he was, you know, in gyms and, you know, health retreats and places like that. But he decided that he wanted to try and get into management development. And he had a break where he got a, a, a job with one of the banks and they were having an off-site management strategy meeting for two or three days. And he was invited to go along and to provide a bit of light relief, you know, where he would just simply um, have some little outdoor exercises which were designed to help people's fitness and become aware of the importance of fitness mm -hmm. in their life and in their, in their work. And anyway, that was done, and then he went back for a review to the bank, and he was a bit in trepidation, you know, was, did they get any value out of it? And the, and the guy said to him, you know, before I, we, we debrief this whole thing, let me tell you that the bar bill was, was cut by 90%. So you more, paid, you more than paid your fees just <laughs> that alone because people were more, you know, aware. Conscious, yes. Conscious of, of this. But anyway, I mean, that's a bit of a side issue, but that got him started in this. But then he realised that, you know, there was a lot more to this if he could actually develop games and activities with people that were directly relevant to what they were talking about in their meetings at the off-sites and so on, that that would have such much greater impact. So he developed a skill where he could understand what people were saying in, the, in these uh, workshops and then almost in real time develop an activity that would reinforce that particular Fantastic. And he became very, he's become very good. He still operates in Melbourne. Um, and, you know, it's an example of customer insight that the real value that can be created 
is not, you know, a side issue of making people aware of fitness, although that's very important, mm -hmm. but giving them greater insight into what they can do to be better performers and better living, if you like, people. That's really interesting because I always think, I've just done a, a, a workshop with some um, businesses in Sydney and a lot of people in that group have never actually asked their customers what they want. Mm. You know, they've assumed but they've never asked. Yes. And, and there was two things to that. One was, well, wouldn't you rather know? It, even if it's negative, you've got a chance to fix it because they're going to go and talk to someone anyway. So yes. you're flying blind. But also then you can deliver what they want. That's so, right. so there's no real downside to that. You know, it's, it's no good putting your head under the doona. It's sort of, you know, so that was a big eye-opener to them that, that that was an opportunity for them rather than something that they should be worried about. Yes, yes. And, you know, once you've made that uh, insight for them, you know, it becomes so much easier, doesn't it? Because they're looking at things totally differently. Absolutely. So, I mean, customer insight is one of the seven. Mm -hmm. Customer foresight uh, is another very important one because that is about uh, being able to understand uh, unarticulated needs, things that customers themselves won't tell you or, uh, you know, don't have the insight in for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also about future needs mm -hmm. so that we know that because of all the change and disruption that's going on in everybody's lives and in all industries, uh, things are going to be different in the future from they are what they are now and in the very near future. And having the then the, the skills across the business to be able to innovate and through that uh, or, or from that customer foresight create innovative value that's going to meet needs in the future. And so you see companies like the well-known Amazon uh, is, a, is a company that is continually innovating and thinking about future uh, customer needs. And they're you know, trying to preempt what customers might have as a problem. So, you know, for example, if you go in and you, you buy my book, uh, it sounds as if you've done that, and then you go in and you, you order it again, uh, they'll say, uh, look, you've already ordered this book. Uh, do you really want a second one? Mm. Um, and, you know, they were the first also to create reviews on books, much to the uh, chagrin of the, the book publishers because they said, you know, if we get bad reviews, we won't sell any books. Well, you know, Amazon says, but we're on the customer's side. Mm. We want to be able to give the customers a choice and make their own choice with better information. Mm. Uh, so that customer review system was really first done with Amazon and was followed in other industries like the hotel industry and so on. Mm. But the first to do this sort of thing in a, in a very effective way. Uh, so, and that's foresight. And they're continually coming up with new things to meet uh, new needs of customers. Uh, and, you know, preempt uh, problems that customers might, might have as a result of change. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two other disciplines around competitors. And one is, it's a bit like customer insight, we call it competitor insight, and that's understanding your current competitors. And it's really understanding that the customer has a world of alternatives 
And so you're focusing on the customer's view of alternatives that, that are your competitors. Mm -hmm. uh, so having that understanding of who those competitors are, what they're offering, how it impacts the value that customers are receiving from us as an organisation, what their strategies might be, you know, how they might react to changes in the, in the offerings, all those things, uh, things that come into competitor insight. Then there's competitor foresight, which is really about future competitors, competitors that are not yet in the space, mm -hmm. which, um, but could come in from adjacent industries, uh, you know, and the, the great example of that is, is the online impact against physical retail, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, and how uh, companies like um, uh, Barnes and & Noble and Borders in the United States, huge bookshops, have been massively impacted. Mm. In, in the case of um, Borders, they've gone out of business in a matter of, you know, five to ten years. Uh, and that's, that's future competitors not being able to understand how they're affecting the value, what we need to do to respond to that. Now, fifth one is one we call peripheral vision, and that's what, you know, people in businesses would understand as the broader external environment, things like the technology and how that's affecting us, uh, the economy, how that's affecting us, uh, any legislative and political things that might affect the industry that we're actually in. These broader external are going green. You know, all these things are uh, broader external environmental things. And having peripheral vision is important as a culture because if it's not spread across the business, that understanding of impact and possible change from the external environment, the business won't react and it won't be able to change quickly enough in response to those mm -hmm. parts. And we've seen a lot, of, a lot of companies, I mean, the most famous company to go out of business as a result of that was Kodak. Mm -hmm. Now, they saw it coming, yeah. but didn't have a culture that could deal with it. Yeah. And um, Sony, in relation to Apple's iPod, they saw it coming, but they had divisional structures. They didn't have they didn't have peripheral vision as a culture. They had it in terms of awareness, but not in terms of the ability to respond. So that's an important one, and it's important for all businesses. I, I spoke to somebody the other day who said, "Yeah, you know, I remember, you know, my parents and I used to run a shop, a corner shop, and then, um, you know, something happened legislatively, and they were put out of business, and they didn't even see it coming. You know, mm. so." Happen at any level, big businesses, medium, small businesses, should be aware of that. So they're, they're, the, they're five of them, two customer ones, two competitor ones and peripheral vision. The other two are collaboration. I mentioned IKEA mm -hmm. uh, as an example of that <clears throat> and strategic alignment. And that strategic alignment, the seventh, is very, very important because what it, it has to be able to do is to have people... Everybody in the organisation understand the vision, the values, the strategy, and what I need to do in my part of the business to implement that and create value for customers. Mm. And so we see that uh, this is strategic alignment around creating value for customers profitably. That, that's that's the theme of it, if you like. Mm -hmm. 
And everybody's tied into that and realise the importance of what they do to creating that value and so looking for ways to create more value from their particular activity or function. Mm. Again, that's why it's cultural. It's not just something from the top. So why have you chosen to put the word imperative in the title? That's a good question. Um, I think it was because we could see that in the fairly near future there's going to be so much disruption to the traditional ways of doing business that the only way to really future-proof your business is to have a customer culture, one which is focused on current and future needs of customers, uh, has the innovative ability and adaptive ability to change, uh, because companies that and businesses small or large that don't do that are going to go out of business mm. and taken over. I'm absolutely convinced of that. I, I, I totally agree. I think that they can feel it, you know, when I'm speaking to sort of small businesses. Yeah. I think the benefit that a small business sort of has is that they can, um, they can talk to all of their staff and if they actually... Um, you know, it's almost like they're going back to those values that they held, held when you were able to talk to all your customers. That's but they right. just actually have to do it in different ways now. Yes, yes. Well, you know, so many small businesses are very, very good at this and so many small businesses are very, very bad at this. Uh, and, you know, we know, I, I, don't, I won't go into personal experiences, but, you know, we can... We can we count stories of the good and the bad in small businesses. But you're absolutely right, Dan, you know, that the opportunity is there to really run a small business very, very well in terms of customer culture uh, because you can reach out personally and the best ones do that with people in the business, mm -hmm. well-aligned, mm -hmm. and they do all the things that you talk about in your business that you should be doing with customers in terms of interacting with them, getting feedback, inviting it, um, telling them then what you're doing to improve it, um, telling them what's, you know, how new value is going to be created for them, you know, why it was good that, that they bought from you. All those things uh, are things that small businesses can easily do if they have a focus on it and if they have a culture mm. for it. Have you got any other examples of small businesses doing this well? Um, let me give you an example of a successful uh, real estate operation in Sydney, and they, they may operate in Melbourne. It's called McGrath Real Estate. Um, you know, that again is in some ways a bit like IKEA. You know, there are just lots of little real estate shops around the suburbs of Sydney under the umbrella of McGrath. And John McGrath is a guy who's very, very customer-centric. He's the guy that sort of started this years ago. And one of the things that he has infused in all of these uh, uh, real estate shops, if I can call them shops, uh, or agencies, is that um, you've got to understand uh, what the customer is actually going through when they purchase or sell 
a house or a unit. Mm. And um, the, the emotional element is highly charged. Uh, and, you know, we've experienced in, in, in our time here in Sydney um, buying and selling places, as you do in the bigger cities. Um, and, you know, the emotional side of it is, is very high impact. Yeah. What John McGrath does is that when somebody moves into a new home they've just purchased, he provides them with a very expensive hamper of food and wine and all sorts of things that go in there because he knows those people are going to have a housewarming party and when they have that, they're going to bring this hamper out mm-hmm. and say, where'd you get that? Mm-hmm. So they're going, to talk, they're going to then talk about their experience with McGrath Real Estate. Mm-hmm. It will come from that one little thing that really doesn't cost anything. That's little um, in relation to, you know, the fees that they get from the, from the sale. So, you know, this is part of understanding the life that the customer is actually leading in a transaction like that. Absolutely. And uh, I've got another example from personal uh, experience. Uh, some years ago I was involved in a furniture removals business. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we found in that business was there was a certain segment of the market, and this was international removal, so it's sending people's household belongings and so on overseas to another country. There's one segment of this market that was different. They regarded security of their belongings as the ability to pack all of the things themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas most removers will say, no, we're the professionals. Mm-hmm. We don't have to pack it. If you pack it, you'll break it. You know, it'll break. And no, 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 we want to do it ourselves. Now, we understood this, and this was a customer insight that I'm to offer a, a service which we call UPAC. So they could go away and pack the things themselves. But even more than that was that it gave them the opportunity to have a big going back home party with all the relatives and friends and so on, which was actually a packing party. <laughs> so this was a tremendous emotional value that was provided to them because, you know, you can imagine they're looking at photographs and they're saying, oh, I remember this, and then they're packing it away, you know, to take it. And the grandkids are there, everybody's there, and, uh, you know, they're all contributing towards this big event where these people are going back home to their land of origin, right? Uh, So, you know, another example of understanding the process that customers are actually going through um, uh, you know, and this was a small business. There's an example of a small business uh, where you know we were able to get this this customer focused culture going well, and it was very very successful. It sounds like it. I often, um, when I'm doing this initially, talk to if if they're not confident in in and there's a lot in the room and they're trying to put themselves in the shoes of the customer. I, I sort of get half of them to be. Um, you know, the boy on the date and half of them to be the girl on the date and just right. think about what they would like to have happen and, and they do this independently and it shows that, 
you know, sometimes by not having that insight, you know, things can go off off kilter. Um, But it's a good example of actually showing that, you know, that that insight can be so powerful in in changing that experience. And I I guess what you sort of alluded to is it actually creates opportunities for the business that would otherwise not exist. Um, And and so just mapping that, I did this with a couple of construction companies because just as you said at the start where somebody might be in the back room not really understanding that end-to-end process of, those key touch points that really can impact that that customer journey, mm. that actually mapping it out, like all the touch points that they understand, what are the potential highlights that they could um, experience by a tweaking and what are the potential opportunities for things to go really wrong and getting the customer to actually contribute to that, that experience can make a world of difference to to that customer journey and I guess a lot of that for me has come from that UX or customer experience or product mapping and taking that into the customer journey of actually being purposeful and mapping this stuff out as opposed to just assuming or letting it happen by chance. And so I think that that, that, that's something that anyone can do. Um, It's an easy exercise but it, it can't just be assumption-based. It's also got to go back and then do, you know, do the research and do the follow-up and actually find out if that actually is the journey that the customer is going through. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, that's very, very valuable. And, you know, there's nothing like having a customer in the room. Absolutely. About making a change. And, you know, what I say to people you know, in workshops is, you know, when, you, when you're thinking about making a decision that's going to, it could be a change in process, it could be a change in price, it could be a change in anything, what's the impact on the customer? What is the value that that's going to create for the customer or take away from the customer? Now, the best person to answer that, of course, is the customer. <laughs> so, you know, if you've got a customer in the room, you, don't, you can ask the question and they can answer it. How so, good's that? Well, that's, you know, and, and I think in a small business, it's easy to do that. Absolutely. You've got some customers that are very loyal. You know, you know them almost as friends in small businesses. You do know them as friends. And you, you may be even having those customers over to a barbecue or something. You know, that, that's, that's the time when you can, you can use all these opportunities at a barbecue, a social event, anything like that, where you've got customers or potential customers to sound out what do they think about this, you know, how would that impact you if you were my customer, you know, that, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, the last question I've really got for you is um, there's been a lot of focus for me particularly about um, small businesses not feeling vulnerable by being more transparent. And an example of this is, you know, often... Um, people are seeking out information and we do we often have this google or we you know we look online before we even talk to some people we're going to engage particularly in a service-based business Um, but a lot of small businesses are still feeling quite vulnerable about sharing or putting out there the information about how they do what they do and i'm trying to explain to them that you know sometimes for example the about us page the more that they can sort of articulate what that experience is going to be like for their customer, 
that is a criteria by which we choose. So rather than just have about us and we're this company, actually disclose a little bit more about, you know, how they do what they do, what the values are, what the experience is going to be like. I just wanted your take on that because there is some hesitancy around around explaining the how and yeah. um, it'd be good to have your take on that. Well, I think, you know, that if you have a very weak customer culture, you are vulnerable. And, you know, you can feel as though uh, if you give things away, uh, you'll be even more vulnerable. Mm. But if you can develop a strong customer culture, which is one of continually improving the value, changing some of the things that you're doing to improve the value that's being delivered to customers. Uh, well, then, you know, when you talk about this customer experience and, and make it available to the public, you know, you are you're talking about today. And to match that, uh, a competitor has to have the, the, the sort of the, the customer culture to do it. Uh, and they need to have the innovation to be able to keep up with any changes you're making. So I think that, you know, on the, the, on the positive side, it would be to say, look, develop strong customer engagement and a culture that supports it and drives it. Uh, that'll allow you to, you know, innovate and do new things so that the things that you're telling customers today uh, about how you're doing things are going to be different tomorrow because you're going to be doing them even better and in slightly different ways over time. And that's, that's the way I would approach it. I think it, it, it's, it's a bit like, you know, your experiences in these workshops where you, you've got to get across the line the idea that ultimately what's best for the customer is best for the business, that reaching out to the customer and, you know, being confident that your offering is superior to any other because you know the customer and they're uh, is, is going to be the way to win. It, it's to, to keep closed and to, uh, you know, be inward focused and so on is really a way to lose. Mm. Well, great. Well, I just want to thank you for the interview and it's an awesome book. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly the way that um, I like to work and, it, and it's, I, I really don't see any option for for um, businesses because the customer is really in the driver's seat making choices about, you know, who they choose to work with and what they choose to buy. So um, I really appreciate your time and I look forward to the book launch. It's coming up and... Um, yes, on May the 2nd, actually. So um, look forward to seeing you there, Dan. Okay. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hey. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. For more great marketing tips, go to Dan's blog at www.daniellemcginnis.com and sign up for her marketing tips or visit her website at www.mcginnismarketing.com.au. Catch you next time.